This episode of Into the Wild is sponsored by Leica Sport Optics. It's well known and proven that connecting with wildlife and nature can improve your overall well-being. So why would you not want to turn it up a notch by getting to see things even closer and clearer with a set of binoculars? It's what I have done and I've not looked back. I can't recommend enough checking out the range of optics that Leica have to offer. A great range of kit with superb optics and they even have payment plans if you don't have the cash up front. I wouldn't shout about a company on the show that I haven't used or been impressed by, and it's important to me that companies we are partnered with have the same values as Into the Wild, which is why I'm proud to give them five thumbs up. If you want to check out more of Leica's range, then visit their website that can be found in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to Into the Wild, your weekly podcast all about wildlife, conservation and nature. I am your host, Ryan Dalton. I hope you all know that by now. Welcome to the show and thanks for clicking play on the pod. Well, I hope you've all had a lovely day. I have. I've been out on Hampstead Heath for the majority of it in the beautiful autumn clear skies. I was walking to, uh, as you know, as a professional dog walker. So I've taken on two new Rhodesian Ridgebacks and they are huge. They are lovely, a lovely temperament, well socialized. They've just arrived a couple of weeks ago from Johannesburg, South Africa, and they now they are here, living in London. And the bit I love most about walking them is I'm not gonna get any sh- from people. <laughs> Because they're so big. They're so lovely. They're so docile. But people are just going to leave me alone and let me do my job professionally. I love that. Um, So I've had a lovely, lovely, lovely day. Right, let's roll into today's episode. I spoke with someone today that I've I've been... Again, it's always the way I've been. I've followed them on social media for a while. I love their work. They're such a good nature and science communicator. And they've just got this lovely warmth about them that you'll hear from the show that I just absolutely love. This week, I had a lovely chat with a man called Ajay Tagala. Ajay, like I said, is a wildlife presenter. He's now an author and does writing um, for various different things. Um, He is also a ranger, which is such a cool job, but um, it does have its challenges. And on today's show, we talk about two different things. So um, Ajay is also a massive fan and enthusiast of bats. So we wanted to have a little bit of a chat about UK bats. And then we also talk about life being a ranger, what that's like, what he has to do, and what other people might find interesting and maybe make you want to try it out yourself as well. So it was a lovely chat. And Ajay's just such a lovely, warm person. You'll be smiling the whole way through this episode. There's also a very, very detailed, (laughs) brief bit of information about oral sex in bats. I'm going to leave that there. And I hope you look forward to it. I'll call this episode Oral Sex in Bats with... I'm not going to do that. I'm not. It would bring in the punters, people. This episode... Jesus Christ. I think if my neighbours can hear me recording this, they've just heard me several times shout Oral Sex in Bats. Why don't they talk to me? Anyway, this episode is called UK Bats and Life as a Ranger with Ajay Tagala. Ajay, welcome to Into the Wild. It's lovely to have you here, my man. How are you? Thanks, Ryan. I'm really good, thank you. Really good. Where are you based in the UK? So I'm based out in the Cambridgeshire Fens, kind of the back of beyond, really. But yeah, lovely (laughs) spot. (laughs) Nice. And we've had a lovely autumnal day here in London. It's been like sunny. And has it been the same for you? Yeah, really sunny. Yeah, it's been absolutely beautiful blue skies here today. It's lush, isn't it? It's so nice. It puts me in the best mood. Like, not that I, I I love rain, but then when it's blue skies, I'm like, 
get in. Absolutely. And when you've had rain and it's made the grass all lush, then the blue sky comes. It's just perfect. And that's perfect. Like, give me that in that order. Rain at night is grand. <laughs> Sunny blue skies during the day. Let's start at the obvious one, Ajay. Do you want to tell everyone who you are and what you do? Sure. So I'm Ajay Tagala. I'm a wildlife presenter. I'm a countryside ranger. So I've got the privilege of working for the National Trust on a reserve called Wiccan Fen in Cambridgeshire. It's the country's oldest um, nature reserve since 1899. So wow. I work there with wild birds and also conic ponies and highland cattle that graze on the reserve. Nice. So that's what I do day to day alongside bits of presenting and writing and generally surrounding myself in wildlife. That's such a nice <laughs> sentence to be able to say, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so are you out in the field quite a lot then? Yeah, yeah, I'd say four days well, out of all five. the time. Yeah, four days right. out of five, I'll be out, yeah, in all weathers. Amazing. Okay, so what is your favourite? Like, I mean, okay, blue skies, I think goes without saying, is lovely. But for you, as a ranger, what is that, that cherry on top weather and kind of climate for you? Do you know what I really like actually is this time of year, autumn, when you get a slightly misty, slightly frosty yes. start and you get that eeriness and that atmosphere and you hear it's the so birds. so quiet. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay, interestingly, because yeah. I don't, I mean, actually, you might have way more birds where you are. So Hampstead Heath, obviously, you get the norm. But you go up, like, if you get there at sunrise on a day like the morning, it's so quiet. Like you can hear a pin drop. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we've got, um, there's a lot of widgeon around around here oh, right. so you just you always hear the whistling of widgeon in the background which is just beautiful it's amazing I, I think i agree because like everyone in my job obviously i'm a professional dog walker so i'm out like you all the time like out and about in it, all elements and people are like you must love summer summer must be your ultimate and i'm like no like i don't dislike summer like i love summer but i don't it's not my favorite time of year my favorite time is today where it wasn't hot it wasn't cold it was like it was like the most ideal weather it was a bit of fret of rain so it wasn't busy on Hampstead Heath. <laughs> it's perfect. Um, so you're out in nature four out of five days of the week. So this should be an easy question for you. What's been your biggest nature highlight in the last seven days? Oh, do you know the hard thing's narrowing it down. There's been a couple of great things. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the best thing I've seen in the last week was um, my first hen harrier of the autumn. Awesome. So nice. actually I was doing a coordinated um, harrier roost count at Wick and Fen. Yeah. Uh, dusk a couple of days ago and uh, sure enough uh, there was a ringtail hen harrier flying to roost very distantly but saw that flash of white on the top of the rump and nice. uh, yeah perfect lovely sight amazing are you a bird guy yeah i am i like to appreciate all things but i i'm just naturally drawn to birds i think are you mm. see i never like the people know on the show i wasn't <laughs> i like people i feel like in the uk it's a big thing because um well, we don't have much else left. <laughs> so, <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so, there is that. Um, but I think like birds are, a, you know, we've got a wonderful variety of birds in this country and, you know, quite accessible to be able to go and see. But I never got that. I'm getting it now. I've always loved birds of prey. I've always loved birds of prey. So I like to go and see them. But I'm slowly getting my feathered feet out there to try Great. and appreciate. <laughs> I mean, they're a good starting place for people because they are quite visible mm. and people, yeah, do see them. But actually, I do like the intrigue of other flying creatures that you don't see so easily. So moths yes. I'm getting into. Obviously. I love yeah. moths. Uh-huh. <laughs> most enthusiastic I've ever been about a moth. <laughs> I do. I really like moths. I had, um, was it a lime hawk? moth fall on me last year ah like i was getting into the front door and it just fell and landed on me and i was like i'd never seen one before and i was like what the 
I'm like, so happy. And I was like quickly ran in, like like took some pictures, then like to put it in a safer place uh, by a tree, and then like ran indoors and got my like Britain's insect books and was like <laughs> like going through. <laughs> no, I love a moth. Um, we're going to be interestingly, you've said that because that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Not moths, but other things that fly that aren't birds. <laughs> Right. Uh, but we're going to be talking about that today. So we're going to be talking about uh, UK bats. Am I right in saying you're very enthusiastic about bats? Yeah, I love bats. Yeah, there's, there's been a sense of intrigue since I was a kid. So I always remember really? my first bat and I'm always happy to see them. They bring me <laughs> lots of joy. When was your first bat? Uh, well, I guess I must have been, I don't know, six or seven years old. Mm. And my uh, uncle lived opposite some old lime kilns where there was Ooh. a roost of bats. And uh, I wanted to see them. And we went there at dusk. And uh, yeah, eventually, after waiting in the cold, one flew past. And I was I was struck by the fact it looked smaller than I imagined. But Mm. it was, you know, just so fast, so acrobatic. And from then on, I thought, yeah, bats are amazing. (laughs) They are. They're that animal I find because I I'm similar to you. I I used to love them. We used to get a few in our garden. I'm not sure the species. This was years ago, back in my hometown. And I remember me and my dad used to just sit in there and just watch it. And we would. we always used to say it was the same bat, probably wasn't, but like, you know, like just fly around and do like the circles by the lamppost where the moths and other insects were flying around and stuff. And there's something very, like you said, soothing about seeing them because again, like you said, they're not that animal you see all the time, but when you do, they kind of hang around for a long time as well. Yeah. Sometimes they repeat a route, don't they? And they'll fly yeah. around in circles and I've had them around here kind of doing a loop around the garden and yeah, mm. you just sit there and, and, uh, you watch them. And I think in China, they're a sign of good luck. And I often think about that and Are think, they? yeah, oh, I feel nice. lucky to see them. <laughs> yeah, it is nice. Because obviously they get a lot of bad press, especially here in the UK, don't they? Sadly, a lot of people... And especially in the last couple of years, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> They've not really had the best PR for them. But, no. um, so let's, let's talk about that sense. Do you get to see them a lot with your work? Well, I mean, we normally work in daylight hours, actually. Um, That's a good point. But, but having said that, actually, um, uh, where I work in the cafe, bizarrely, there's a hole in, in the wall underneath the roof and there's a roost there in the summer of, uh, I've counted over 100 bats, pipistrels what? there. So part of my job is to count count the bats coming out of the roost and that's insane in the over daytime. 100. Over 100 in this small you know, wall cavity. So in the daytime, people blissfully drink their cup of cup of tea and they're unaware of the fact they're just a few metres from sleeping bats. That's mad. Yeah. That's so, so cool. Oh, that's mm. amazing. I'd love to see something like that. Like, I've never seen a roost. I'd love to see a roost. I'd absolutely love that. Ah, I'd one of the best things I've ever done was I got the chance to visit a greater horseshoe bat roost in Dorset. And uh, yeah, that was just insane. Seeing them flying out of an old school roof. Oh, yeah, man. over our must heads. Must be amazing. I'd love it. I'd absolutely love it. Um, so you said that. Um, you said obviously you work in daylight hours. We know they're nocturnal. Probably start to come out around dusk time. So is there like an ideal time to go if if people want to go and see bats? Is there an ideal time, or is it kind of just change between species? Well, time of year is key because they do hibernate oh, right. in the winter. So um, you know from spring through to late October is the best time. And yeah, cool. dusk, I mean, different bats have different flying times. So they come mm. out at different times of night. But the most common bat, the pipistrelle, that people see the most often, then the most widespread across the UK, they come out just before dusk. So that's nice. quite a nice time to see them. And uh, and then as you get you know further towards midnight, if you're in the right place, some of the larger bats start to emerge sometimes. 
And what, what about habitat? Because like we, the two places we've just mentioned where you've seen good roosts <laughs> are probably not where people are going to be expecting to see bats, like in the roof of a cafe and in a crevice in a school. But is that, I guess, is that becoming more common or has that become more common over the years where, you know, are they adapting to live in more humanised areas? In some ways, I mean, that's both an opportunity and a threat. So man-made buildings with a constant temperature, you know, so old roofs uh, or Mm. even new roofs sometimes um, can be a good place for them to hibernate. But of course, then they can sometimes come into conflict with people Mm. if if people don't want bats in their roof um, or if uh, buildings are being adapted and the uh, entrances get blocked up. Uh, But other than that, obviously trees, old trees are an important place. Um, Mm. The cavities in old trees are are a great place for them to tuck themselves away and and to roost. We find them a lot on London canals. Like they are always, Hackney's got like some amazing, like the best times I've seen bats or the most times I've seen bats in London is in Hackney along the canals because there's so many old bridges and they just, and obviously with the water and the insects and stuff like that, they are just everywhere just like flying around and it's so nice like you kind of get you know, you know we spend a lot of time on a canal boat so when we're on there you we kind of just like lay on the roof in the summer and just watch the bats fly around it's so nice to go and see nice. but is there a good habitat so is it like woodland areas are we talking Woodland's good, but I mean, gardens as well. If Corridors are really important for bats because right. they'll forage along hedgerows for, for insects. So the connectivity of, of hedgerows and, and wild patches and also flowers like um, some of the scented, night, night-scented flowers mm. like honeysuckle. So gardens, if you put the right things in the right places, can be good for them. But yeah, open parkland, as you said, uh, probably my favourite bat species is called the Dorbenton's bat. And I still ask you your favourite. Yeah, yeah. Dorbentons has to be the one because they're the ones that feed over water and they scoop insects off the surface of rivers oh, and ponds, cool. which is yeah, amazing. Oh, that must be that must be awesome to watch. So, how many species do we have in the UK? Do you know there's not actually that many? There's only seventeen, just seventeen species. I'm not going to make you name them all unless you can. I, I can name the the eighteenth one if you like, um, <laughs> because there's, there's <laughs> so there's seventeen breeding bats confirmed right. breeding bats here, but there's an 18th, which is the greater mouse-eared. And bless it, there's only a single one down in West Sussex. So it's not a breeding what? species, but there's one in, a, in an old railway tunnel down there. There's just one? Yeah. I mean, they used to breed here uh, in like the 50s, I think. Um, but they're no more. But now, yeah, there's just the one, poor thing. Oh my God, what a story. Mm. And what's that called, the greater mouse-eared bat? Greater mouse-eared bat, yeah. Yeah, they're quite big as well. I think they're about the size of a small rabbit. Yeah, this, yeah. <laughs> got the funniest faces in the, in the whole of the natural world <laughs> like they're just so they just every, most pictures they either look comfortable or they're screaming mm. like that's what they look like <laughs> that's one or the other they're at one end of the spectrum or the other with <laughs> their, their mood oh they're adorable listeners obviously if you're not if you're driving pull over if you need to urgently look at a great mouse-eared bat but check that out because that is adorable so how varied is a diet in the uk of bats like because we've, we've spoken about the insects but is it pure insect diet yeah in the uk it is yeah they're all insect eaters um so nice. ranging from moths to various flies but i mean in sort of the tropical parts of the world you get the fruit eating bats for example yes but in the uk they're all they're all insects no blood you know that's really really key to point out because some people think you know but not in the uk <laughs> i love that guys no blood don't worry no. about it no that's a very specific region <laughs> um how true is that yeah that is true well i mean uh, 
there, I mean, there's always exceptions, isn't there? There might be some that have tried other things as well as insects. But um, yeah. in general, there's very few bats that feed on blood and they're, they're not found in this part of the world. But, but, they, but they do exist. The, yeah, I think the vampire bats. And, of course, then that has spread and become, you know, the association the with Halloween, etc. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's mad that that is a thing, though. Mm. Like, it sounds so, like, I think in 2022 with, like, fake news, like, we have that kind of, like, is it real or is it that kind of, you know, like, there's um there's an insect that screams when it runs. Camel spider. Ah, okay, right. And apparently it screams when it runs. Wow. And <laughs> I, it was one of those bits of information. I was like, does it? Does it? Or was someone screaming when it was? <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> like, I don't know if it does. Like, if there's any listeners that know much about the camel spider, but like, it, the vampire bat, it's just that kind of story now sounds like it might have been a bit like, was it just near some blood? And, <laughs> but no, I'd like to, I'd, I'd I'd like to read some more stories about that. Yeah. So purely insectivorous in the UK. That must that again tells us how important insects are in this country because we always are slamming insects and mass populations. But like they must be well, obviously they're of great importance to the bats. Yeah. Well, everything fits together, doesn't it? We need insects to break down decaying matter, um, and then we need bats to make sure that insects don't become too numerous. It is that they all kind of balance out, don't they? And they all fit fit together. Uh, but obviously, we know now the importance of insects for pollination, um, and also bats for pollination as well in other parts of the world. Oh, um, really? They do the, some of the, the the ones that feed on flowers and fruit. Of course. Yeah. And Absolutely. I believe um, agave is pollinated by bats, and that's where tequila comes from. So, <laughs> I love the connection. Yeah, I'm not a big you're, tequila you're making, fan, but um, no, either am I. No. no, but I mean that 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 works for so that will keep South London people happy. They like tequila, and right. it will keep East London people happy because they love agave. So you know we've got we've got half of London sorted for appreciation of bats. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Hey, sorry to interrupt the episode, Nature Nerds. It's Ryan, your host here. I just want to give you a quick shout out about something. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, accessible for everyone. However, running it is not free. If you would like to support Into the Wild and say thanks, then you can do so by visiting ko-fi.com forward slash into the wild pod. The link is in the write-up of this episode. By doing this and buying us a coffee, you are helping the future of Into the Wild. Thanks very much and back onto the show. So it's well known that bats use echolocation. I think it's one of the most, you know, well-known things. And it's, it's, you know, there's wonderful things you can go and do in regards to like bat walks and hearing them and stuff like that. But how does that work? Because I know it's quite a tricky thing to kind of understand. Yeah. First of all, let's just myth, uh, myth bust and say that they're not blind. Um, so some people think bats are blind, blind as a bat. They're not blind, um, but they use echolocation because obviously they're out in the dark. And yes. so how it works is they kind of, they, they make sounds as they fly and the sounds bounce off the objects that are around them. And so the sound will hit uh, an object, it'll come back and then that'll tell them its size, its shape and how close it is. That's and also... Mad. That helps them find their prey as well. So they'll they'll pick up insects by getting the uh, the sound bouncing back, and it's really cool if you listen to a, um, them on a bat detector when they're feeding because mm. the sound of those the echolocation sort of screams of sound if you like get faster and faster as they get closer to an insect and you get this kind of raspberry sound as they as they feed sort of 
and it's it's amazing. That's amazing. That's yeah. that's really really cool. That's that's mad though, isn't it? That they can do that. I I, I mean, this is me humanising it too much, but it's so quick. It's such that instinct to be able to do it. A bit like our, I mean, you know, same with our sight and how we get, use our senses. I know, but it's like it's just mad that that's a way to visualise your environment. Yeah, is to do that. It's so yeah. it's so incredible. Yeah, because obviously we you know we think of how we interact with our um, environment and how we see and hear things, but then you get dogs that sniff a lot more. It's more about scent, yes. obviously. Yeah, um, and then with bats, it's about sound and echolocation. It's just how they're adapted to surviving and to thriving. Because there's a lot of people say with the echolocation is that it, I, I say a lot of people say it's an over exaggeration. I've heard people say, "Oh, don't worry, they'll never fly into you." Like, because a lot of people go, I don't want them in my head. So, mm. No, they never will. But I mean, obviously accidents can happen. <laughs> like, yeah. they might. The more there are, the more likely they will. But I guess um, bats in the hair, that's another myth. I mean, that because they yeah. are so good at navigating around because of their echolocation, uh, they'll know that you're there. They might fly over your head really close, but they know you're there. Yeah, sure, if they're panicking, there might be the odd occasion where yeah. they just, yeah, panic and get caught in someone's hair. But I mean, it's very rare and very unlikely. Yeah. How do they how do they mate? What's going on there? Right. <laughs> well, I mean, they're flying yeah. a lot of the time or hanging. Yeah. I mean, I know they can crawl. How's that happening? <laughs> well, I, I think some of them do mate upside down. Brilliant. Yeah, some of them do actually mate upside down. <laughs> it's not so much on the wing, it's when they're it's when they are kind of um in a cave. Yep. And I believe that the males... Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Is it? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, no, I think <laughs> it depends what, you, what you're into. It depends what you like. Everyone, you know, there'll be a group out there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like birds, you know, the, the, the males try to impress the females. So yeah. uh, the females will emit pheromones and males will start to swarm and the females will pick the more agile ones. So they kind of show their, their strength and then they'll kind of sneak off to a quiet, quiet place of the cave together and, and mate, mate individually. <laughs> he would have already laid like a line of petals leading to around the corner. They all know where they're going, but they do that upside down so they'll hang and mate. Hang and mate. Yeah, hanging out and yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, also I read that they, they even perform oral sex apparently. Not in the UK, but they're, yeah. They're <laughs> I love the way you said that, as in like, they go abroad to do it. <laughs> it's well, not allowed in the UK, it's frowned upon. Yeah, exactly, we're a bit they, too inhibited. oral sex. Yeah, there's some fruit bats where the females <laughs> perform it on the males, and also some flying foxes where it works the other way around. I mean, well done flying foxes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's not all about you guys. It's not all about you. <laughs> okay, that's weird. Because yeah. I thought there was there's not many animals that do that just for <laughs> this is like this is like the rudest conversation we've openly had on the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's been lots of innuendos, but this is the first time we've ever gone, yeah, a bat gives another one a blowy. Like we've never actually <laughs> said that. We've never had reason to. Um so what so is that just for pleasure then? I'm guessing it's a, a sort of a, a precursor to mating. I'd imagine. That's what I call it. Yeah. <laughs> word for word, that's what I say. <laughs> Should we have a bit of precursor to mate? <laughs> oh, but they, so the UK bats don't bother though. They're just straight down to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. None of that fancy stuff, yeah. Nice. And then I guess if we're talking about mating, and none of that fancy stuff. Well. <laughs> <laughs> How do they give birth? 
So you get maternity roosts and uh, they'll roost together in the kind of late spring, early summer, and they mm. give birth to, to live young, their mammals. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, in caves, in old roofs, in, in their roost sites, um, there'll be communal maternity roosts and that, that's where they give birth. And they feed their young on, uh, on milk and they're called pups. Young bats are called pups. They're called pups. pups. Yeah. Oh, bat pups. I yes. like that. I like that. How did they... they, they I, I went to ask this and my brain does this thing, Ajay, where I go, is this a stupid question? And I'm like, just say it. Mm. Can they fly from birth? I think it's, I suppose it's a bit like birds, you know, it becomes instinctive and they just sort of, once they their wings are developed enough, they start stretching and sort of right, dry right. flapping. They probably have a few accidents, some fall down, then eventually <laughs> yeah. they get the hang of it and nice. then they're ready to go. And so they'll grip the onto the mum, I assume? Yes, so they grip onto the mother, yeah, yeah. Right, that's cool. God, some of the babies must be tiny. Yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I think they're really cute, especially some of the fruit bats. They look like my Labrador, you know, they've got these big eyes and yeah, they're just, <laughs> I think that bats can be really cute for sure. They are, I, do you know what, I, I, I'm going to say that, bats are cute. There are some non-cute photos out there, I grant you. So if I say that, don't anyone tweet me with an ugly photo of a bat because it doesn't prove anything. That just proves you found an ugly photo of a bat. But uh, bats are cute. They, Like you said, they've quite often got big ears. They've got that very foxy kind of shape of a head, haven't they? Like quite a lot of the time they are they are mm. cute but there are some ugly ones out there uh, <laughs> <laughs> um so how are they doing in the uk regarding conservation we love to talk about conservation on the show mm-hmm. it's one of our focuses so let's talk about uk bats what are the if any and i assume there are unfortunately but what are the threats to bats in the uk well there's lots of threats to bats in the uk um, and one of the key ones is habitat fragmentation so obviously roads mm. crisscrossing the landscape right. because they they like to follow hedgerows they like to follow corridors to forage mm. obviously barriers to that gaps roads etc developments that kind of it puts blocks in their way to navigating around and finding their their prey so that's one thing another thing is lighting as well oh okay yeah so if you've got night lights it's good to have the red lights and perhaps not mm. have them on all night if you don't need to um, because uh, light can disorientate them and it can make them think it's still daytime. So they might not leave their roost. Wow, yeah, yeah. And then they can't feed and they can't survive. So lighting, fragmentation. Other things are cat attacks, sadly, that happens. Really? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes cats That's can mad. catch them. Mm. Domestic cats need to have a word with themselves. <laughs> <laughs> and in some parts of the world, they're hunted and eaten, actually. Really? Yeah, not here, but um, in other parts of the world. They no, are. I can't imagine there's a community in England doing that, but <laughs> it doesn't sound like something. The fragmentation thing's interesting as well, because with corridors, when I've spoken about corridors of like um, for wildlife of, with hedgerows in regards to animals that use it, you don't think of bats. You always think of things that are actually inside the hedgerow using it as a literal corridor to get to A to B. You don't often think of things using it in the way that bats are doing, do you? No, especially with flying animals, you think, yeah, yeah. They, can, they can move around they'll have no problems but yeah that's how they navigate themselves around that's how they find their their food so yeah yeah it is really important for for many reasons to have many hedgerows yeah yeah and what so what um what is being done to help conserve bats are we like you know we so we we know the problems we know the stuff how are they being mitigated well there's various great bat conservation groups and, and charities that promote being bat friendly and so that you know um there's building restrictions so that you can't disturb them there's legal protection for them uh when they're in their in their roosts uh, an interesting fact is they'll have a maternity roost in the summer and they'll mm. have a winter roost where they hibernate but they're they're never really the same place so if oh. say you need to develop a roof you might not be able to do it in the winter but you'll be able to do it in the summer or vice versa 
So right. it's not blanket, you can't do what you want to do if you've got bats in, in your building. It's a case of working around them. So it's spreading yeah. things like that, education. That's, to be fair, that's actually quite like... Like looking at it like that is is probably the best thing, isn't it? It's like no, it's not. You, they're not restricting you. They're just like you just got to work with them here a little bit, like change change what you're doing and stuff, and learn about them as well. And I think that's something I think I'd love to see more of in the UK is that willingness to actually want to live with the wildlife around you. Don't see it as oh, we got bats in the loft. It's like okay, we got bats in the loft. I would celebrate it, but there are many that might see it as a bit of a challenge so they go okay well let's see what we have to do rather than going oh there's a bat in the right shouldn't be a bad thing i don't think no absolutely i mean they can bring so much joy as you've said and i've had the same mm. thing of watching them flying is a wonderful thing to enjoy so why wouldn't you want that on your doorstep yeah exactly i i would like I'd be, okay you're gonna put up with a bit of literal shit <laughs> but not much but people still use lofts I guess they do. That that's sorry, that's a Londoner questioner because I rent a flat. So that's ah. a very like, you know, I'm not a homeowner. I don't know that lots. But just cover um, your stuff, you know, put a cover over your belongings yeah. in the roof and you're fine, you know. And you're you're literally simple. fine. Yeah. Yeah, you're absolutely yeah, yeah. fine. Is there anything else you would say like for people that want to learn more about UK bats or people that want to go and kind of um I don't know, maybe emerge themselves a bit, immerse themselves, sorry, a bit more uh, in the world of UK bats, where can they go and what, what can they do? Well, there's the Bat Conservation Trust. So look good at them online. Really good place to start. <laughs> and actually all regions of the UK have got bat groups. And it's really cool. If you get involved in your local bat group, there's some great people. And uh, they're not always the kind of demographic you might expect. You know, the, 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 there's <laughs> what a lot... is the demographic we might expect? Goths? Well, <laughs> no, I can't. With a lot of naturalists, a lot of the great people that devote their time to research and monitoring mm. are often people that are mature in years. Yeah. Uh, uh, for example, uh, predominantly male, perhaps. Maybe I'm thinking about the birding world. But I went. <laughs> no, up... you are right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. But I went up to uh, Edinburgh to do some filming for a bat documentary uh, with yeah. a local group, and so I had this kind of idea of what it would be like in my mind. And I got there, and there was a group of about twelve young ladies that were all, you know, um, young and enthusiastic, and really awesome. loved their bats. And so there's a, there's a lot of uh, a lot of love for bats uh, across. All kinds of people, which is wonderful. That's really nice to hear. That's really nice. To hear. I love the fact that there's local bat groups as well. Yeah. As there bloody should be. Like, Absolutely. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm going to look up mine and see see if I can get involved. Um, so let's let's talk about your book a little bit as well because you had a book come out. Um, so we, we've bat chat done. Let's get right. on to the book. <laughs> um, so your book, The Unique Life of a Ranger. Tell us about this. How did this come around? Well, it was a lockdown project, but I worked, before I was at Wickenfen, I worked for many years on the Norfolk coast, uh, mm. a place called Blakeney Point, a nature reserve that sticks out into the North Sea. Um, it's a three-mile walk along a shingle spit to get there, uh, or you can go by boat at high tide. Um, myself and a couple of others were stationed out there in the breeding bird season to protect the ground nesting birds in this old shed, this old lifeboat house in the middle of nowhere. And so I always get asked what, what it's like being a ranger in a remote place. And obviously you see so many wonderful wildlife spectacles, but there's lots of challenges. Mm. Um, and so I wanted to kind of summarise all that, get it all down and share what it's like being a ranger in, in a book. Is it like a diary kind of book? Is it what can people expect from reading it? Yeah, it goes through the seasons. Um, yeah, so it's about yeah wildlife through the changing seasons. And it's about, yeah, the different species, but also kind of 
the, the whole variety of what the job involves. You know, Rangers kind of a jack of all trades. When you're out in places like that, your jobs yeah, range from cleaning the toilets through to uh, you know counting <laughs> the birds. Off. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, putting up fences and and predators, predator control, uh, and you, you're at the mercy of the elements. So you're watching these birds, and you might have prevented them from being disturbed, but then suddenly a, a big storm rolls in and they get washed away. So there's all this jeopardy, and you know, it's <laughs> all not all. It's not goes all. In, you're like, ah, oh, fuck sake man <laughs> yeah yeah it's not all people think oh you must have a great life living on a beach outside uh having this dream life yeah at the best of times it is but you know you're out in all weathers and mm. wildlife faces a lot of threats and you're on the front line seeing that so it's both a privilege and sometimes a challenge so it's kind of a a message to people that want to follow that as a career to definitely go for it but be really uh dedicated and uh, determined and no, you'll have to work hard, but it's worth it. It's so worth it, obviously, because, for example, I worked with school children for the first time um, when I was oh, on nice. the Norfolk coast, and I was really nervous about that. I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm going to be so rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> what, what am I going to do? But then, yeah. you know, we watched um, some eggs hatch on the beach, some oyster catcher eggs, and oh, they were amazing. so captivated. And I realised that education is so important and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, sharing those wildlife moments is is so important, and what a privilege to be able to share that with other people. Yeah, absolutely. We the one thing we hear a lot um, for from government and and the way to go forward in the UK and probably around the world, but focusing on the UK, is creating more green jobs, jobs to do with the natural land, to do with the environment. Do you think a job like a ranger of any kind? Do you think we need to have more of these roles across the board for the natural world in England? Yeah, absolutely. But also, it's not just about nature reserves, as you said, about greening up all places. So yeah. on farmland as well, and in all all different areas, gardens, etc. Um, golf courses, there's a lot of golf courses in yeah. the UK. And I think it's about, yeah, having ranges beyond the prime wildlife sites, and mm. uh, encouraging wildlife everywhere and anywhere as much as possible. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And did you think like, because Reserves is a very interesting one, isn't it? Like because they're like you said, they're they're wildlife focused. And I'm always intrigued about this kind of, you know, how we conserve wildlife, the way we do it. And and reserves are a, a, a one way and a good way, you know, in regards to being successful of doing that. Is there things you would change within a reserve as, a, as from a ranger's perspective? Are you, do you ever work in reserves and go, do you know what? I think it would be better if it did a bit like this. Oh, gosh, that's an interesting question. I mean, they're, they're so set up to protecting wildlife yeah. that obviously, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all legally binding with the, the, the sites of special scientific interest, mm. the National Nature Reserves. You're legally obliged to manage them for the wildlife species that they're designated for. So that's really important. It can obviously present a few barriers as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think that balance is really good of, of having the prime reserves, um, the prime parts of reserves that are protected and cherished and and intensively managed sometimes mm. but also sometimes you're almost fighting you know to protect a little isolated place and actually what you need is that buffer zone around it where you yeah, can be yeah. more free with how it's managed um, but just provide that space and I think creating space for wildlife is so important even if it's just a little wet area or a little you know no mow may for example yeah. not cutting grass leaving some wild areas we know now more than ever that that's so important and that that along you need both you need the nature reserves but you need that buffer zone and that connectivity um so the more of that we can have then absolutely the better i think also as well the more you have of that 
the less reliance you're going to have on nature reserves anyway. The, the reason why we're in the situation in the UK, I believe, that we have such a reliance on nature reserves is because we don't have these buffer zones. Like you said, with the, the, you know, everything is so just stripped of everything. So these nature reserves become like a don't do anything. To, like, do you know what I mean? They become the, the life support for biodiversity in the UK rather than a place for biodiversity strictly. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's that kind of situation. And, and these green spaces are so easy to create. They're so easy. They're so cost effective in regards to they don't need a lot of money. But you, they are also things that I, I think that, like you said, with the ranger job, you actually can put money into it and create an economy in with restoring natural. Like these are all the right buzzwords, I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, conservation's gone on a journey, even in, say, the 20 years I've been involved in it. And it's yeah. more visitor-focused, which is so important because mm. you've got to yeah, involve absolutely. people. Um, and so now on places like on Wick and Fen, where I work, used to have this tiny car park and not many people went there. But now we've got boat trips, we've got cycle hire, we've got trails oh, for families. So people can come here and have a great day. Um, and as you said... You've got to have that. It's a balance, isn't it? There's got to be areas where people don't go because you need to leave it for wildlife, for nesting rare birds, mm -hmm. etc. Um, but getting that balance and getting people involved uh, is so important. Have you seen a change since lockdown? Because obviously lockdown was a time where people were massively reliant on the green spaces for obvious reasons. Have you seen that? And I assume there was a change during lockdown, but have you seen that change continue after? Yeah, it's been really interesting because it, it went on an interesting journey from obviously seeing nobody in nature reserves to yeah. then seeing local <laughs> yeah. people. Yeah. <laughs> and when you couldn't go very far, but people that live nearby and had never visited before were coming. Mm. So you got this kind of, you sort of had to almost re-educate people. We had a lot of disturbances, a lot of dogs running free. Uh, I'm a dog lover, obviously. Um, yes. But, you know, when you've got nesting skylarks... Keep them under control. Um, so spreading those messages, leaving gates closed, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So we went through this journey. It was great to get a new audience and more people appreciating it. And uh, and now we're in this kind of middle ground again where, I don't know, people can go abroad and go shopping. <laughs> but hopefully, I think people have got, uh, more people have got a stronger connection and appreciation, which is really important. I, yeah, I think I, I, as, if I compare it to where I am around here, I think you're completely right with it got the local people there so mm. during lockdown you did have the masses and then it's like as the masses have gone the local people have found their patches and mm. now know and know it very well like you know Hampstead Heath is a huge place but for me it feels incredibly small um because I can just get across it I know every turn every tree every everything um as many people do with their green space so um yeah I think you're right I think the local people I think lockdown showed local people what's on their doorstep um which again is something we've spoken about so many times on the show sure. as a matter of importance um but I think it was also nice to recognize that it has happened um, and when it has happened, you do kind of create that more localized empathy for mm. your green spaces a bit more. There's still work to be done, I know, in my area, but I, I hope that that has actually happened. It's good to recognize it. Yeah, absolutely. The people getting more of a sense of ownership of their local mm. place and yeah, taking pride 100%. in it. Yeah. I mean, even after lockdown, actually around here, we've had more consultations from the council than I've ever seen. Like if things are going to be changing, they, we get emails out and it's like, this never happened before lockdown. Right. <laughs> this yeah. never happened. And now, and, and there are a lot about green spaces, how to go forward with them. Like I know Haringey Council sent out uh, a consultation, wasn't the best one, but it was a consultation that came out that I had never seen 
in my years living here before. So maybe, I don't know. There's all these things that I could be just connecting unnecessary dots, but at the same time, it's, you know, you've got to recognize the good. Because obviously there's a lot of challenges. There's a lot of things that it's easy to get upset about. Mm. But I always try and focus on these these positives that are there. Mm. And people are talking about these sorts of things and appreciating them, as you said, more than they have done before. And that's so important. And that's that should yeah. be celebrated. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so... Your book, your book's out now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's out. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, that, right, people buy it. Um, <laughs> um, so what's next for you? What else have you got in the pipeline? So it's nice on the back of that, I've started writing a few things for BBC Wildlife and BBC Countryfile magazine. Nice. So I'm continuing to do a few things like that. Um, you know, I do bits of TV here and there. I've just done CBBS for the first time. Yes, yeah. That was great. <laughs> with Chantelle Lindsay, we had a great time. Nice, I love Chantelle. Yeah. So I'm hoping to do more of that kind of stuff and continue to just spread my love for local places as well as yeah. nature reserves and appreciating. I do a, a little wildlife, uh, what's it called? I do a hashtag Wild Wednesday little thing every nice. every week of just what I'm enjoying locally and seasonally because obviously we're blessed with the changing seasons here in the UK and that just makes everything so interesting, the changing cast of species. And yeah, I always appreciate uh, whether it be autumn colour or those winter mornings, or you know the promise of spring to come. Amazing. Well, Ajay, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for sharing your enthusiasm with bats, and it's been really nice to hear uh, to talk to someone that's a ranger. I don't think we've done that before, so it's been nice to hear a bit of maybe a little bit of a sneak preview of your book that was on on a podcast form now. <laughs> oh gosh, well. <laughs> but if anyone's interested about being a ranger, then it's definitely something to look into. Take it takes time and effort, you know, you got you're not going to get paid much and you've got to volunteer to get going, but if you can find a way and you you love your wildlife, then it's the most rewarding job going, really. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, man. Absolute pleasure. Cheers. Great talking to you, Ryan. Thanks a lot. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the guests that have appeared in today's Into the Wild episode, then you can do so on social media. Their tags are in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, however running it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks then you can do so by buying me a coffee. Our Ko-fi link is in the write-up of this episode. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.